Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz trombonist, composer, and teacher Alan Ferber. He is now promoting his newest 2016 album, Roots and Transitions, which happens to be very raw and special to him. He just swung through Kansas City in May of 2016 and continues to stay very active in his career. Originally from Oakland, California, he is a big fan of big outfits. Whether it's a non-ed or a 17-piece big band, that has led him to work with the likes of Esperanza Spaulding, Dr. Lonnie Smith, Ted Nash, Toshiko Akiyoshi, Lee Konitz, and many more outside of the realm of jazz like Peter Gabriel, Paul Simon, Dr. Dre, and so many others. He's a prolific sort with over 150 CDs to his credit. He's got a lot of mileage on his jazz odometer and tasty insights as well. So get to know Alan and dig this interview, my friends. Before we begin, i got to say, as someone that loves jazz, I always find the trombone kind of up there with the vibraphone. It's the instrument that people don't think about. It's not the forefront of the instruments, but I have a great deal of respect for the instrument. So just so you know up front, I'm, I'm very uh, happy to speak with you, not only about the trombone, about, but about your career in general. So Yeah, yeah. Thank you for taking a little time out for me. And I'm going to just start right off the bat here with your second album as a leader, Roots and Transitions, and kind of ask about what, what, what it's been like for you promoting this album and any kind of current activity, like a snapshot of things that are going on with you. It's actually my sixth record as a leader, but it's, it's the first record that I've made that's, number one, 100% original compositions and arrangements and number two that was written in a in a sweet form i mean it's a not a sweet form but uh it's a piece it's an eight movement piece it's very different than all the other records i've made in the sense that all the writing was done in a focused period of time uh, that focused period of time was the first year of my son's life so um i didn't really have to i had time only to, to really do it on the trombone so um sure. i think the record's kind of unique in that sense because all the Compositional material was generated on a single line instrument. Um, so yeah, this re- I mean I don't know that I, I maybe it's, it's because it's a new record, or maybe it's because of the way I conceived of all the music. But I feel very attached, or in some way emotionally attached to this record in a lot of in ways that I haven't with with other projects that I've done. In terms of promoting it, I mean you know with every new record it gets a little bit easier to get people to listen to your to your records, you know what I mean? I mean, sure. when you do a debut record, it's like you nobody know, knows who you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the record I did before this one got some industry recognition through a Grammy nomination, and that certainly helped, you know, I guess legitimize, you know, whatever that means, legitimize my name to a lot of people that perhaps wouldn't otherwise have listened to it. So I've gotten a lot of good critical response to the record and I've had a chance to perform the piece and with this band a fair amount since it came out I mean for a non-et which is not an easy thing in this day and age to to perform and certainly tour with um, I've been able to uh, to get it out there including a, a couple of dates in well one date in Kansas City and one in the surrounding area so it's been it's been cool. It's been really interesting to see how people have responded to the music, especially because for me it's a little terrifying to put something out that's one hundred percent original. You're just burying your soul. Sure. <laughs> sure. 
Absolutely. Well, and, and I'm going to get to that part of your music psyche that has a big ensemble, a 17-piece or a non-ed around. But I want to start at your very humble beginnings in Oakland, California. How did a kid from California, Oakland specifically, grow up to become a big shot in the jazz world? I think that the, I mean, I, I was born in Oakland, and we pretty quickly moved to right across the hill to a very small town, a suburb called Moraga, which is where I was raised. Uh, there was a lot of community involvement. I mean, for one thing, my mo- my mother, uh, my grandmother was, was in music. She was on Broadway and subsequently joined the MGM payroll, and so they moved to L.A., and she made a lot of movies, a lot of movie musicals, because she was sort of the triple threat performer. She was a singer, dancer, actor, actress. So my mother had that kind of experience growing up, and in her blood in a way. So she was really active in getting me exposed to music uh, in a very natural way because that was her reality. And she was also really active in in the schools that are very, like, preschool. You know, starting with preschool, she would come and and do music time, music class with with us. Um, So really involved in getting us exposed to music at a a really young age and got me started... um, on piano when I, I think when I was four, my brother and I, my brother's a drummer, he's on the record, and we're identical twins. So I think that also factored heavily into it, having an identical twin brother who shared a lot of the same interests and passions about music, you know, from a very young age. And we just did the journey together. And there was always a little bit of, you know, healthy competition between the two of us. Um, to improve and to, to always be checking out different things and to create opportunities, you know, little gigs around around town and around the Bay Area. So that factored into it a lot. And, and, you know, my high school, my junior high school, both had band programs, and I had a lot of um, exposure to, you know, a, a, quite a bit of, you know, like ba- ba- band and, you know, some marching band. Uh, in high school, you know, a lot of and jazz band, jazz ensembles in junior high school, and even in there was a community college that I would play in the jazz ensemble with. So there was a lot of opportunities if you found them. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this: Why the trombone? Why was that your instrument to gravitate towards? Well, it sort of gravitated toward me by way of um, my teacher. My fifth grade teacher. I was. I'm six five right now. I mean, I, I I was always really tall for my age. I was the guy. You know, I was one of the few kids who had arms long enough to reach down to close to seventh position. So, <laughs> so he just put it in my hands and said, "You play this because you can. You know, physiologically, you're you're set up for it already. And yeah. these other kids aren't. Um, I guess you know. I have to blame it on my genes, I suppose." <laughs> <laughs> Um, Very cool. And I didn't really take to it immediately. I mean, it took a couple of years, and it wasn't until really I I went to uh, when I was thir- uh, fourteen, I think, I went to uh, my first jazz camp, the Stanford Jazz Workshop, which coincidentally I'm I'm going to be on faculty this summer um, there, which will be kind of a full circle moment for me. But uh, that was the first time where I heard my teacher and a few of the students, a um, couple of which I'm still t- close with, I heard people that could really play 
the trombone for the first time. And it really inspired me to to keep going with it because I was like, wow, it can sound like that. That's amazing. And to see people my age playing it really well was really inspiring. And then I was set up with uh, a great teacher named Dean Hubbard uh, in my town, and he was one of the he was one of the busy freelance trombonists in the Bay Area, and an excellent kind of all-around trombone player, really focused on fundamentals, but also, you know, we would always jam for the last 10 minutes on a Jamie Aversold play-along recording, and I was always just in awe of what he could do. So uh, I'd always tape record those lessons and tape record his playing and take it home and try to figure out what he was doing. So that that was, you know, having this, finding the, finding Dean when I was in high school and studying with him for four years was he, I mean, that was huge. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. On the trombone, when you were kind of getting into it, were there any albums, any jazz albums specifically that you listened to that really inspired you and got you going with the instrument? Oh, definitely. I mean, my first album, the, the, actual, the first album I ever bought was John Coltrane's Blue Train, and that's only because in Moraga there was a little, there was a tiny little record store they had a lot of tapes, saw the cover, and it was like could look cool, you know, had train on the front, it's kind of darkly lit, looked like a true jazz album, you know. And I, right. I I think that was one of the one of maybe two or three names that um that I had actually heard of. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember if it if it was my teacher or somebody but somebody mentioned John Coltrane, I think. So I, I, I picked up the tape at the record store and I turned it around and I, uh, or no, actually on the front, I had noticed that there was a trombone player, Curtis Fuller, which was also a name that I had, I had heard. And I said, well, this looks like it, uh, it'll probably be, be good jazz, you know, sure, <laughs> with trombone on it. So I, I got it. And my brother, who, you know, we went to the store at the same time for his first record, he happened to pick up Art Blakey because he's a drummer, Art Blakey, the big beat. And so those two albums were really the first exposure to jazz, and they continued to be two of my favorite albums of all time, probably just because of when I found them, uh, but also because, you know, I mean, the fact that my instrument was on on the blue train and, and, uh, and I, I was hearing the trombone being played in ways that I've never heard it before. I mean, I, I remember so distinctly, that was the first solo I learned, and... Um, I think this is true for a lot of trombone players. Curtis Fuller's solo on Blue Train is like a classic solo. I mean, that seems to be like a a really good first solo to learn, even though there's tricky double-time passages in it. It's one of those solos where it's like great, big, dark sound, great facility, good feel on a blues. It's It's like the perfect solo to start with in a lot of ways. You know, that really got got me going and and of course from there then I started to really search you know it for for other things so I started asking a lot of people what should I buy and that led me to uh, some of these camps led me to a lot of interesting recordings I remember being turned on to J.J. Johnson we had to learn J.J. Johnson's solo on Old Devil Moon which is on uh, one of his Blue Note records at the Stanford Jazz Workshop that one I went to and um I remember that I hearing that was just like wow that's you know it's a 
a way of playing the trombone that I also, I'm, I was just completely enamored by it. Once you get started down that path and, you know, one thing leads to another and you're you're starting to be ex- become exposed to a lot of different trombone players. I just got obsessed with it after a certain point, completely and utterly obsessed with the music and, and with finding trombone players on albums until it, until I started to branch out and listen to other instruments. <laughs> you know? Sure. So was it a foregone conclusion growing up that you were going to get into music, or did you have other dreams of it, how your life was going to be played out? Oh, definitely not a foregone conclusion. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I've heard this before, but, you know, music chooses you, you don't choose it. And I, although I got I got the bug to play music early on, I don't think I ever really entertained it as a as a viable career option, even until after I graduated college. I mean, I got an economics degree from UCLA. I was sort of accepted on a music scholarship, oddly enough. Um, so I was involved with the bands heavily at, at UCLA, but I just never really thought about, you know, doing it as a career. And part of that, you know, part of it may have to do with the fact that uh, my parents... You know, growing up and seeing their routine, my dad worked um, in the health insurance industry, and he, you know, he'd wake up every morning and go to work and come back at the same time. It's a, it's a very regular schedule. Um, and my mother, um, she taught a class at the university, and she was she was involved with a lot of things in in, in addition to raising us. But she also, my mother, having grown up on the road for the first six years of her life with her grandmother, she she would often talk about how hard the the business is, how hard being a entertainer is. Um, from her experience w- with traveling in these train cars for six years, before they finally settled in Seattle, I think they they ultimately settled in Seattle for a little while. And she finally entered school and met kids her age, you know. So she knew it firsthand. Um, so I think I had all that in the back of my mind, but at the same time, I was just, once I was exposed to it, I think I just, I, like I said, I got obsessed with it, and you can't stop that train. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, once it's going, it just, I just got more and more into it, and I went through college, and I did, I did well in college. I graduated and everything was cool, and I and I did start to take a couple of you know interviews with quote unquote real jobs, but I very quickly uh, was asked to to go on the road with a band, and um, and uh, that was it. I, I one thing again, one thing led to another, and here I am. <laughs> yeah, well, and as your career has gone on after school, and as your career has taken off, as we touched on a little bit, you've been a non-ed a 17-piece big band. You've been in the big bands of Ted Nash, Lonnie Smith, Miguel Zanon, John Ellis, Charlie Hunter. The list goes on and on and on. What is it about you that's gravitated towards that large group ensemble? Well, I think that extends back to, you know, junior high school. You you know, as a trombone player especially, you're, you're exposed to – to playing in large ensembles from a very young age. So I was in a big band in junior high school and then all the way up through high school, I was always playing in big bands. And I studied, you know, I studied piano for 10 plus years. I don't know what what accounts for this, probably just a lot of um, both people and playing in large ensembles, but I became a very good reader 
uh, sight reader. And I, th- I think that that contributes to, you know, why you get these various opportunities in, in all sorts of different big bands. Because if you can come in and read something well and know how to blend with a section, you know, if you had that experience growing up, which I did, um, then it's sort of a natural environment for you. It doesn't feel foreign and it feels very comfortable. So, I mean, that's that's one... I mean, I think that accounts for one reason, but I also really love being involved in a community, you know, of musicians. I've never really been the isolated jazz artist who pulls up for weeks on end in a practice room and practices by himself. I think there's an element of that, and certainly everybody, including myself, has done a lot of individual practice, obviously, but... In the end, I like to be involved in a community of musicians, and I like to interact with people, and I like to hear their ideas and, and collaborate. So that being said, I've, I've always had a kind of a easy time with... Uh, it felt natural to me to integrate myself into a music community. I mean, early on in, in Los Angeles, after I graduated from from college, and then when I moved to New York, I just immediately tried to integrate myself into the community of musicians, meet as many people as I could. Once you do that, and if your skill set kind of fits their artistic vision, then uh, you start getting a lot of opportunities. And I've always really been into a lot of different kinds of music, too, which I think helps generate these opportunities. I've never been like, it's got to be hard bop, and that's it. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed playing... A lot, you know, rock, Latin, classical, jazz, everything in between, all sorts of hybrid styles. And I, it, to me, it's all just music. And if it's good music, it's music, period. I think that a lot of people sort of see that in, perhaps in, in the way I approach their projects, but also maybe hear that in my own recordings. You know, they want that in their project. Um, I, I will say, you know, if any young kind of musicians starting out are listening to this, I, I will say that Doing your own projects, although it, it sometimes feels like it's a vanity project, you know, you're spending all this money to record your own music and who's going to listen to it. I mean, in the end, it's, it really is, it's, it identifies you as a certain kind of musician and thinker. And it, it helps for other people that are in the music business to kind of identify what you do. And so instead of just like, oh, we need a trombone player, they eventually... They say, I, I I want, you know, Alan Ferber or whoever, you know, in a way you define yourself by doing your own projects um, and it can create a lot of great opportunities. Another part of that question that I was asking as well was with a lot of these big established musicians that you play with, what do you learn from people that have a lot of mileage behind them in the jazz world? Oh, gosh. You know, I increasingly I learned to, to not get so caught up with the, with the minutiae you know, just the small little, the small little details. I'm I'm finding that the more mature the musicians that I play with, the more sort of big picture they're they're looking and conceptualizing things. Yeah. Um, rather than getting caught up with oh this note was a little sharp, you know, or or whatever this tempo was was three clicks too fast. They don't really care about that. They're more care they care more about the overall mood and spirit of the music. And I think that if anything, like the older seasoned veteran musicians really 
identify that and they that that's the way they think about music they've gone through their periods i'm sure of the details as they sort of have matured into these great artists i've just found that they they really are 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 really good at stepping way back from what they're doing and conceptualizing and hearing it on a on a bigger scale i think that that's something i really draw from and respect from from some of these seasoned you know, artists, and something I always try to pay attention to, you know, how do they think about music? Like, for instance, when I was playing with Lonnie Smith, um, uh, and this is something I was talking to my friend John Ellis about, because I, I, we had done a rehearsal with Lonnie, and we, you know, we rehearsed all this music, and we got to the gig, and we did none of it. We did none of the music that we actually rehearsed. I was like, wait a minute, what was that? <laughs> and and so we came to the conclusion that, I mean, John made the point that, because he had been playing with Lonnie before, and he said, well, you're not rehearsing with Lonnie necessarily in the traditional sense. You're not rehearsing a certain set of music that you're going to do later. You're rehearsing, you're rehearsing on how to be in the moment with Lonnie. Like, that's what you're rehearsing. He wants you to just learn how to just be in the moment with him so you can go in whatever direction and you can get into his spirit world, you know, whatever that means, um, instead of rehearsing the details. He doesn't care about the details. He just wants you to be totally in the moment with the music. And that's a really, really heavy kind of conceptual thing and also very ballsy, you know, to, to in my opinion, you know, being, coming up and playing with a lot of younger musicians who, would never do something like that if they, you know, and we're rehearsing for like big festival shows, not like a club with 20 people where the stakes are lower. I mean, these are big, big opportunity kind of festival shows, and that's how we rehearse for them. And I thought that was just amazing, you know. It's so interesting you say that because I always joke around, especially after I interviewed, had the chance to speak with Dr. Lonnie Smith, and there's something very... I don't even know what the right word is. There's something spiritually wise and deep that's not regular human life. It's something way above and beyond that when you just talk to him and you you feel what he's getting out of this life. And I always joke, and I'm not joking, but I'm just is the best way for me to put it when I talk about people like him is that he's a part of the Jazz Jedi Council. He's in Cloud City. He's around a group of table with Sonny Rollins, Lou Donaldson, and all these guys. And what you just said plays into that Jedi principle. When Yoda was teaching Luke all of these things, you're like, well, why? But it wasn't until he actually needed to use it that he was thinking about giving him that feeling of being ready for what he was going for. And you just kind of nailed it with what I've talked about, these guys being a part of the Jazz Jedi Council. He was getting you ready in a kind of ambiguous yet specific way, you know? Yeah. And that's ultimately the music. That's where the music lies. It doesn't lie in the detail, in the small minutia. You know, it lies in the moment. And how 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 much are you going to embrace the moment? Because if you fully embrace it with these people, with these kinds of artists, you the fear part is removed, and you're in this other z- zone. And yeah. that's where you can really tap into the to the stuff that really connects with, with with people that don't know anything about jazz. That's when jazz, to me, is at its best, is when it just gets into this other realm of 
spirit and mood and feeling where anybody that's listening to is like, wow, that is, I love this, rather than this sort of nerdy, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, wow, they played fast, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 no. Well, it's it's kind of like that feeling you get when you listen to something like Kind of Blue for the first time. It just breaks every kind of barrier down. You're listening to something that's truly beautiful, for, just for the fact that it's beautiful music, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a perfect example. You know, the other, you know, just the other night I was sitting on a panel. I was lucky enough to to be a judge at the BMI Composers Final Recital. And so I was on the panel. It was just three judges, me and Wynton Marsalis and Jimmy Heath. And I thought, wow, I can't believe I'm sitting next to these guys right now. And I was so I, we, we, we were listening to the first half of the concert, and, you know, everybody brought in these great charts. And I was like, I was like listening to these charts thinking to myself, I was listening to all these details. Just, I was, I don't know, I was, I was trying to kind of, I mean, the concept of judging music is kind of ridiculous in and of itself. Um, yeah, the way that I had been judging a lot of festivals, sort of recently, most recently, I had this score sheet with all these criteria in front of me, like uh, ensemble blend, and I had to actually. I mean, it wasn't like this at this particular event, but I had I had a few weeks earlier adjudicated uh, like one of these high school jazz competitions where they gave me this piece of paper with this whole list of criteria and you have to stay within this number range and uh you know there's all these boxes like intonation um soloists you know um uh on saxophone you know ensemble uh articulation and you know you listen to all these little details and scoring each one of them so i had my head kind of in this world so as i was listening to these bands at the bmi thing I was um I was I was finding myself listening to all this detail at the end of one chart. I just remember I was I was trying to process everything I had heard because I really was trying to do a good job of, of thoroughly listening to everything. And Jimmy just kinda leans over to me and he just says, Wow, that chart was dynamic. <laughs> I said, Oh yeah, you're right, it was I know that I mean I wasn't even thinking on those levels but yeah, he's right. It really was dynamic. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to all this other stuff that didn't mean anything to the mass audience, you know, basically, the music. I wasn't really listening to the music. And then he just had this made this one statement that was like, oh, wow, right. That, that chart was really good because of this simple thing. It just was loud and then really soft and <laughs> yeah, and then really loud, you know. I, it was kind of like another moment where I was like, "Wow, this is <laughs> it's very that's cool. cool." Yeah, that is that's very very cool. You know, you've really gone outside of the realm of jazz. You've played with a lot of other musicians, like Peter Gabriel, The National, Harry Connick, Dr. Dre, Beirut. What is it like to get outside of that jazz realm and to work with other bands? How does that help you grow as a musician? Well. um, Every single one of those people that you mentioned, you know, once you get outside of the jazz realm, the, the way music is generated generally in the in the rock world is so different than the way it's it's often generated in the jazz world. Um, in the sense that, you know, somebody 
generally, if you're writing in the jazz world, if you're writing a piece of music, you're 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 writing it on instrument. You have some some proficiency on. You know, you've spent hours and hours working on it. In the rock world, it's like, you know, they'll go to a, uh, an, you know, sort of a an antique store and find this broken down guitar with two strings missing, and then bring it home, like, and, you know, it's fifteen bucks or something. Bring it home and just strike. One of the strings, like, whoa, that's cool. I like the sound of that. That's awesome. And then just generate this idea from this thing that they don't even play, just this sound world. And then all of a sudden, this becomes this this really cool, you know, in the right hands, of course. It becomes this really cool tune. Like, I mean, a good example is I I, I played on the last, um, well, it just recently came out. I played on the Paul Simon record that just came out called Stranger to Stranger. It's a, it's a brilliant record. Sure. If you if you haven't heard it yet. Um, yeah, yeah. But a lot of the songs are generated because Paul had seen, had heard about, you know, his son had hit them to these sort of electronica artists or whatever, and he was, he would check them out and like, whoa, I love the sound of that. You know, not the content. Not, I mean, maybe he liked the content too, but it was more like, I like that sound. I like that. So he would... Um, it generally in that world, and Paul Simon, I guess, being the example here, they just work from that sort of angle. Whereas sometimes, and, and, and that can really spawn some, some very compelling music from a sonic and melodic perspective. Again, Paul Simon generates really amazing melody from whatever. So um, I think jazz musicians oftentimes, and particularly if, you know, I don't, you know jazz education, uh, the way jazz is taught, these days is, um, you know, oftentimes it's taught first from the content part. So, you know, for instance, a student will come in and take a composition course and the first thing they'll talk about, okay, let's let's work on this exercise generating a a melody based on a guide tone sketch, like thirds and sevenths, which is a great exercise. And I'm I'm certainly not saying it's, it's not valid, but then then immediately you're you're sort of composing from an exercise standpoint rather than generating an idea that's totally sort of abstract um and i think that working uh with artists that um maybe don't have like a tenth of the training that jazz artists do sometimes um in terms of technical things and theoretical knowledge and knowledge of harmony and how to voice chords, which jazz musicians increasingly have all of these tools, um, whereas sometimes sort of rock musicians don't necessarily have all those tools. Then you're, you're you know, you're generating ideas from from more abstract concepts, and, and um, I think that's the main thing that I learned from, uh, from these artists outside of the jazz world is just how they generate ideas and then how they develop them, which tends to be very improvisatory. I mean, in Paul Simon's case, which was interesting about the session I did with him, is that somebody had spent a lot of time writing an arrangement for the song that I recorded. Paul walks into the studio, he sees the arrangement on one on, on the stand, he said, just get rid of that. Didn't even play it. Didn't even look at it. I mean, he wow. saw it enough to see that there was something on their stand. He said, we're not going to use that. And I felt so bad this guy had spent all this time. <laughs> wow. Uh, and we started from nothing, and he just sang a line, just that what he was feeling right then and there. 
And based on, you know, what he saw, the instruments that were in the room and, you know, probably the temperature of the room, I don't know, (laughs) Um, his cab ride to the studio, who knows. He sang an idea and uh, we played it back as best we could. And then he said, okay, I like that. Okay, maybe let's try the voice record. And then, you know, we play another idea and these ideas lead to, to different ideas. And then four hours later, we've got something. And uh, we we go back into the room to hear what we did, and it was like eight measures of music, but it sounded brilliant. <laughs> wow! And I had completely lost track of what we were doing. I mean, we were like all these ideas being thrown around at lightning speed, just like hearing him sing something, and then we'd try to play it back, and then he would revise it, and it was just like exhausting. But in the end, he came up with something that really served what he had so far, you know, the rhythm tracks that he had pre- had already recorded. And that would really, I mean, part of that too is Paul Simon has a lot more money to work with than most jazz musicians. So he can afford to just like mess around in the studio like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, at a, at a hot top notch studio. Generally jazz musicians, like they're working on a shoestring budget. They've got three hours, four hours, whatever. you got to crank it out. Everything's got to be prepared. And you got to just do it. So it's just, you know, part of it is is a situational thing. But that that process is is pre- to me is pretty common in in the rock in in the genres outside of jazz. I mean, not classical music, but you know, in in more of the rock pop zone. Yeah, well, you know, and that, and that that's another thing that I wanted to ask you too. You've been in so many environments and done so many projects. You have at least 150 projects under your belt. What what is that like for you? Do you feel prolific? I mean, I, there's so many things that I still want to do that I feel like um, no. I, I in a way I feel like uh, more often than not I feel pretty non-productive in a way. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, I, I do sometimes look back and think like, wow, you know, I've been a part of a lot of music that has been generated, you know, my own, but also in in as a sideman to all these other artists. So. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose at this point, when I look back at what I've done, I feel like I've contributed. I can be happy with what I've contributed so far, but at the same time, I have all these projects in my head that have been floating around my head that are unrealized that, um, I mean, I would really love to, to do. So I I do feel like, you know, I, I feel like I could be more prol- prolific for sure. I mean, to me, it's not what about what I've done; it's what it's what I'm doing, you know, or what I'm going to do, planning to do. Sure. Once I've finished something, I just it's done, and I move I move forward. I don't really dwell much on, unless I you know I've got a record to promote and I'm trying to get the music out there. Um, then I'll, I'll dwell on it, obviously, for a while and really try to get it out there. And and uh, but you know once. Once I've moved on to my next project, I've moved on to my next project. I I really want that to be different, special, and different, and new, you know. So let me ask you this. You had a trip to Kansas City on May 7th at the Blue Room. What was that experience like being in Kansas City and playing live? Well, I'd been out there before. Uh, My friend Matt Otto lives there. He's a friend of mine for years and years. And uh, I always stay at his house. So so I knew knew the scene, and I, I really... From when I went out there before, uh, I knew that I, I just connected with the city. I just there's something about Kansas City that I really like. I, I like the fact that it's it's a smaller city, but it has all this really rich culture, 
it's got great food and great coffee, you know, <laughs> great beer. And, and there's great venues, like really interesting venues with a lot of, uh, to me, a very vibrant music scene. Um, and, uh, and like I said, some friends of mine live there. I mean, Matt and I did a record years ago with, uh, vibraphonist Peter Slam. Yeah. Who, uh, who played with me while I was there this, this past time. So I have friends there and I'm developing new friendships there. So when I came back to Kansas City this time, the first thing I did was a little short residency at um, KU. And I uh, worked with the program there. I worked with the big band and did a little master class and whatnot and then did a gig at the Blue Room with the same band that I had. I had performed my my project, my new Roots and Transitions project at KU and then the same band played at the Blue Room, I think, the next night. It was really fun. I, 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 uh, it was a lot of music, a lot of brand new music with very challenging things for, for all these guys to absorb in such a short amount of time. And I felt by the time we got to the Blue Room, we were really tapping into the spirit of the music, which was cool. And also made me realize the music that I wrote is, you know, maybe harder than I, I, I give it credit for or something. You know, when you spend so much time with the music, it starts to feel easy to you as the composer. But then when you put it in front of people, you realize, oh, actually, this is not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's a little bit, it was really informative to me. Like, they did great on both concerts, but I really felt like when we, we, I'm so happy we had the second night to perform because to me, they really, I felt like we were absorbing it and and functioning as this sort of single organism, you know, (laughs) as opposed to nine different people. Um, and it, it, the music started to really come come alive and uh, feel really flexible and uh, organic, for lack of a better word, you know, at, sure. the, at, the, at the Blue Room. Because people just had the ideas in their ears and they were reading, you know, quote-unquote, reading it less and, and feeling it more. It made me want to come back to Kansas City and do it again because now I've got this band that I like there and um, they've dealt with this music and kind of my concepts. And, uh, you know, make, I want to cultivate more in general, you know, in those kind of, in not only Kansas City, but in cities where I'm doing this kind of thing more and more. I can't, you know, it's hard for me to afford bringing a, the same band from New York to all these different cities when you're playing at a club like the Blue Room. But you can pick up local talent and, and do, and put on a great show. And I, I, again, I like that element of community. So I, I kind of like harnessing what the community's got and then just bringing them into my world and seeing what happens. And uh, it was fun. Beautiful. So you, sp- you spoke about going to KU. You've been very active in the education world. What do you like to give to your kids when they leave your instruction? What do you want to put in their minds? I really want them to get excited about the music, first and foremost. And in the process of that, I, I try to really solidify the fundamentals that they need you know, if if the student that I'm working with, if I'm feeling like they really do want to do this, get on the scene and perform, and be and be involved in different projects, I know the tools that that requires. So if if I'm identifying that the student wants to do that, you know, generally I'm bringing in a lot of music that I'm dealing with in my career, my freelance career. So I bring in all these disparate charts that I've been playing with in the real world, quote unquote, and I have them work on that 
stuff for the week, you know, sight reading practice. In addition to fundamental things, you know, if if they can't play all their major and minor scales, I mean, that's a problem. <laughs> so I, I make sure that they have technical facility and a good grasp on, on just the, the basic kind of fundamentals that they're going to need if they, for instance, you know, play a Broadway show. They get a chance to sub on a Broadway show. They need to know what is required to kind of get that gig. And I said, well, if you really want to do this, this certain, if you want to really tap into this scene or whatever, you you need to have this together. If they're if they're not very good sight readers, if they if their time tends to rush or drag, then we start designing exercises to to work on those things. So by the time they finish with me, I just want them to to have the tools available to be able to perform at you know at the highest level. I also just want them to be excited. I want them you know, and I, I often teach by example too. I mean, I'm I'm active as a band leader and as a performer, so. If I'm doing a recording session or if I'm doing a gig, I say, come down to my gig. Come down to my recording. See what it's like. And sure. often when they do when they do see that and experience it, they get really excited. About, I mean, it's, it's one thing to see sitting in, the, in a room by yourself with these students. It's another thing for them to see you on stage or in a recording studio actually doing it. When I combine those two things with my students, it really is impactful to them. And uh, I think for, for a lot of them, I mean, a lot of my students have gone on to do very well, which I'm really proud of. Um, right on. And I've, I've set them up with, with a, lot of their, a lot of their initial opportunities. I always know when, when the cord is cut, it's like when I start to see them post on Facebook or whatever, I'm doing this gig and I had nothing to, and I had nothing to do with getting it for them. Then I know, okay, they're cool. I can move on to the next guy. Beautiful. You know, one thing I wanted to follow up with Kansas City before we leave that nostalgic route, if you could go back in time, because you were down on 18 and Vine, which is very history-rich here in KC, if you could go back in time in, a, like, a jazz DeLorean and see a show, where would you want to go? Who would you want to see? I think my answer would be pretty predictable, but, um, I, I mean, I, I would do just about anything to see the John Coltrane Quartet. I, I was obsessed with with their with with that band and and still am and probably always will be um i just would I, you know you know how people say oh well you hear the recording that's one thing but when you hear them live that's another thing i hear these john coltrane quartet recordings like impressions for instance and think like that is so unbelievably high energy i can't imagine like if i'm seeing this live how could it be more high energy than this yeah, but you know it is, and to me, to be able—I mean, to to be to to hear Elvin Jones playing, I mean, who I've heard live—I I heard him several times live—but to hear him with John Coltrane and McCoy and Jimmy Garrison live would be one of those things where I—I I just think that I—I I would never fully recover from. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and as a brass player. I would love. I mean, I, I would absolutely would have loved to have heard Louis Armstrong um, play live, because I think the sound, that sound, I, I just, I think that would just, blow, I would probably just blow my mind. Yeah. Um, and I, it's also just one of the things that the farther, farther back you get, the more, un, you know, the more unreal it seems that, that actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
so to hear someone like Louis Armstrong play live to me is like so far from my reality that to, if if I had an opportunity to hear that, I think that would just be in, incredible. And you know Charlie Parker, of course. I mean, to to be able to hear Charlie Parker, to be able to sit like like for instance, to be able to sit in the Charlie Parker with strings recording session, Bird with strings, would just be that's kind of just a surreal thought. Yeah. But, you know, obviously, I just named three of the, of, oh, okay, I, I can't, it, the Miles Davis group with Wayne Shorter and Herbie and Tony Williams. The, to me, that, I mean, Ron Carter, that, to me, that that's a little more like, because I've heard a lot of those people play, like I've heard Wayne with Herbie play duo, and but to hear that quintet play in the 60s when they were, you know, playing like that, like the plug nickel kind of stuff to to be in the at the plug nickel would just be uh kind of a dream come true but you know to be honest like my one of those one of those kinds of bands that um is still living that i'm going to be able to go here next week at the vanguard um is the joe Lovano, tom harrell uh, anthony cox and billy hart quartet uh, they have a record from 93 live at the village vanguard that is um perhaps my favorite jazz record of all time and uh to to the fact i saw that on the calendar i was like tripping out as if like they had all died you know that kind of tripping out like wait a minute they're playing live yeah <laughs> and so that's i'm right. gonna go i'm gonna go hear that that's gonna be kind of my lewis armstrong moment i think <laughs> that's cool man yeah i love i love it when the modern day has that speckled motion to it as well so um, yeah let me ask you this why do you love jazz i love um I mean, so it's a bit of a hard question to to answer. I think the thing I love most about it is is finding those little moments where you you get into the those little zones we were talking about earlier. To me, that that's what makes all of this worth it. Because more often than not, you're playing a gig or recording, and you're kind of you're doing a job or whatever, and you're trying to get into those moments. You're just trying so hard to find that moment because that's that's really where you know the music. Is at its best, and uh, unfortunately, more often than not, it's like for whatever reason, whatever circumstance, it's often out of your control. It's hard to tap into those those little moments where you just forget about everything and you're in this zone with with people around you. Um, but to me, that's what I love most about jazz is that the music, because of its improvisation element and a lot of things being left to chance, it allows for those moments to happen. And when they do, you you realize like why you're why you're doing all this, why why you're investing all this time into kind of this music that's you know this art music that uh, is not like a popular music, you know. Yeah. You you start to realize why you you spend so much time doing it because it it is when you tap into those little moments, it's like a drug, you know. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know, with, and with my non-it, I mean, coming back to my my new record, my that group. Um, because that band, it's a true band that we've been together for a little over 12 years. The more you, the longer you have a band intact, the more often you're able to get into those moments. So yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I, I love having a band, a long-standing band with a history, because now when we perform, I feel like we can get into those moments multiple times a night um, when we're performing, and it's just, it's just amazing when, when that happens. This is my final question. 
everybody has a perception of who you are, your family, your friends, your business associates, everybody in the crowd that you play for. But who do you think you are? When you wake up and you face the world, who do you think you are? What's your perception of yourself? Well, I'm a father who's trying to get better at being a father and playing trombone, taking care of my family and myself and, and my students and whoever else is around me. I mean, you know, I'm just a human being. I, I, that's how I see myself, just somebody who's trying to, you know, survive and, and play music, play music that I love. That's how I see myself. I see myself as, as a hard worker, for sure, somebody who's happiest when I'm, I'm able to work on the things that I value, like like writing music and practicing. If I can get time to do those things in a, on a real meaningful level, get a couple hours of practicing in, some writing in, then I become, then everything else in my life becomes better. Like I become a better father and a better husband. I just become a better person in general. That's sort of how I view myself. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to become the best version of myself. And I've, you know, I've discovered that I'm lucky. You know, I found music. You know, I, I think, I don't know if a lot of people are able to find that thing that, that really makes them click and very happy but you know i i was lucky enough to find that pretty early and now i'm doing it as as a living and that comes with the challenges for sure it's certainly not that easy but you know but i feel pretty pretty lucky that uh i found something that can that can turn me into the best version of myself if i'm doing that i I, i'm i'm pretty positive i stay positive and things things really click i enjoy life you know so that's i guess who i am That's a good way to wrap everything up. Alan, thank you for taking your time out today to give me your story and opening up. I appreciate it, man. Of course. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate your time, too. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Alan for his stories, his music, and contribution to great sounds in the world around. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Jazz.